We believe that there is agreement for the WHO team, the World Health Organization team, to deploy with American participation, and our team are preparing to be able to get there, but we're waiting for final word. The U.S. is sending health workers to China to try to stem the coronavirus there. The virus is spreading rapidly, and there are now at least 15 cases in the United States, leading many to wonder, would the U.S. be ready to handle an outbreak here? What should Congress's responsibility be before and during an outbreak? Representative Anna Eshoo, a Democrat from California, sponsored a bill that became law last year aimed at increasing our preparedness. She joins us today by phone. And later, I'll talk with Nikki Clowers, Managing Director of the Healthcare Team at the Government Accountability Office, which monitors the performance of executive branch agencies for Congress. Thank you, Congresswoman, for joining us. I'm delighted to. Congressman, you wrote legislation last year to improve the country's readiness for pandemics. Would we be ready now if, a vi- if this virus or one like it started to spread rapidly here? No, we don't. Uh, it, it will take uh, on a fast track, uh, as uh, I understand it from Dr. Fauci, uh, to develop a vaccine uh, to address the coronavirus. So uh, we, we don't have a stockpile, uh, and uh, it would have to be fast-tracked, as he explained to members of Congress, and it would, it would take, uh, I think the fastest they could come up with a vaccine uh, would be a year. So uh, it, it's a challenge for us. And Dr. Fauci, Dr. Tony Fauci, is the lead official on infectious diseases at NIH, the National Institutes of Health. He is, and uh, our country is so blessed to have this man in service to the people of our country. There, he's in a class by himself. So, given your concerns right now, what is, what's Congress' responsibility here? What could Congress do to help improve our readiness? Well, I think uh, there are several things. I've been uh, ringing the bell for uh, almost a year on our nation's drug supply because we have, I think, some really very serious challenges. Uh, relating to it. Uh, we don't, uh, for the most part, uh, manufacture uh, most of our drugs, especially generic, uh, in the United States anymore. Uh, uh, 90% of the American people uh, take generics every day, and the supply of generics are manufactured in both China and India. Uh, there's an issue related to uh, the core ingredient uh, that makes a pharmaceutical drug uh, uh, effective, and that's uh, it's called uh, API, uh, Active Pharmaceutical Ingredient. And China dominates that ingredient globally. Uh, now, I had a hearing uh, last year, last, uh, I believe, September, uh, on the issue on our nation's drug supply. And uh, we identified three major, I think, crises in the global pharmaceutical supply. We have shortages of life-saving medications uh, because we have uh, hospitals in our country that are rationing critical drugs. The uh, vincristine 
uh, drug shortage. That's a pediatric cancer drug. Uh, it's very, uh, very much on the front pages uh, of uh, our nation's newspapers at that time. We have subpar manufacturing, so we have contaminated drugs that contribute to drug shortages. And because we've had many recalls of common blood pressure medications because they contain carcinogens, uh, one of the drugs that uh, uh, was affected was the uh, Losartan. That's the ninth most commonly used drug in the United States. And obviously, we have an over-reliance on foreign uh, production. Is there something there Congress should do? We have to figure out a way to bring manufacturing of uh, pharmaceutical drugs and generics back to the United States. Now, it's one thing if China makes T-shirts and sportswear and shoes and whatever, but uh, we cannot be dependent on a foreign source, especially a country that is not exactly a 100% ally. Uh, there were high tensions obviously, around the president's policy of, uh, of tariffs. Uh, now uh, now I, I've asked uh, uh, Dr. Cadlick, who heads up ASPR, uh, which I created that along with, um, uh, uh, with DARTA, uh, for uh, an inventory of where the manufacturing plants are in China. Are they in provinces that are under quarantine? And if they are, uh, are workers still working in those manufacturing plants? Uh, they haven't given me a, uh, he couldn't give me an inventory. He said that they were working on it. So I think that this leaves our country highly vulnerable, highly vulnerable. Your legislation, the Pandemic Preparedness Act, was reauthorized last year. Uh, were, there, were there important changes made there that helped? Well, we we did we upgraded and changed some things, but the uh, they they weren't drastic. They weren't drastic, and uh, uh, but we had to work very hard to reauthorize it. I mean, none of these things are are easy. So uh, there were some areas in the two agencies, both uh, Asper and Barda, uh, they made recommendations to Congresswoman uh, Brooks and myself. So it was bipartisan you know, uh, in the authorities that they have. And then, of course, their, uh, you know, what their budgets are. Uh, but there were not uh, major overhauls. Uh, I, I wouldn't call it that in the reauthorization. Now, core funding to state and local health preparedness efforts coming from Congress have declined over the last couple decades from about $940 million in 2002 to $265 million last year. Is that an area where Congress needs to dedicate more resources? Well, I, I believe so. And when the full House had a, uh, I can't remember if it was a classified briefing or because we've had several for the full House uh, by the administration and all the uh, uh, the key uh, 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 heads of the agencies, uh, they uh, they spoke to the need for uh, additional appropriation. So we're we're in the process of doing that. But you point out something that's very important. Now we recently had in this country a measles outbreak, and we're in the midst of a particularly deadly flu season. That's in part the result of a failure to get vaccinated. Should states do away with religious or other exemptions for vaccinating school children? 
Uh, it's an excellent question. I, I mean, I, I have two children, and, you know, the idea that I wouldn't uh, have them vaccinated, but also if I hold that position, that they, uh, if they, in fact, had uh, measles, that they could infect other children uh, is, um, uh, I think, uh, it's dangerous, A, B, I think it's unfair. I have to think it through to see if we should do a, uh, you know, have a national umbrella on this. Uh, but I think that it has, uh, that issue has certainly, uh, I think, increased vulnerabilities in communities across the country. Now, on, uh, on, on uh, uh, flu shots, uh, I keep putting out to my constituents that the two most proactive things that people can do is to wash their hands frequently, uh, cover their faces if they're coughing or sneezing, and uh, third, it's flu season, and uh, everyone should have their flu shot. There are more people that die of, uh, of uh, flu in our country uh, than, the, uh, than, the, uh, than the scare of uh, the coronavirus. Good advice, Congresswoman. We appreciate you joining our show today. Thank you. Now we're turning to Nikki Clowers, Managing Director of the Healthcare Team at the Government Accountability Office, to talk about the federal government's preparedness for an outbreak. Welcome to the show, Nikki. Thanks so much, Sean. Happy to be here. So, Nikki, I'm wondering, from your perspective, is the federal government ready for a coronavirus outbreak or another epidemic outbreak? It's, it's too early to say, give a definitive answer if we're ready. What I can tell you is we've seen the government take a number of important steps to, to mobilize and prepare uh, for the coronavirus or maybe even a future infectious disease outbreak. Uh, there's been important steps taken. Uh, for example, the secretary about a week and a half ago declared a public health emergency. The secretary of health and human services. Yes. Secretary of health and human services declared a public health emergency. And that was an important step because it triggers a number of important authorities for other, other agencies. For example, um, it allowed uh, the department to access funds from the infectious disease rapid response funds. Uh, to distribute to prepare for the coronavirus. It waived certain uh, requirements for agencies, which are designed um, by waiving the requirements. Uh, it's hoped that agencies will be able to respond in a, in a quick fashion. It also allowed uh, state and local uh, public health departments to use their workers to, to somewhat transfer, detail their workers uh, to work on the coronavirus. Uh, just this week, we've seen DOD take action as well. Uh, the joint staff uh, issued an executive order that started planning and preparedness among um, the military for the coronavirus, and that was an important step to take. Okay, so we've seen in China that they are taking very uh, serious steps. They're, they've closed off an entire province to travel. They're quarantining people uh, who have the virus. 
if we were to see uh, coronavirus here spreading as rapidly or, or some other epidemic, might we see similar steps taken? Certainly you would see uh, public health officials talking about the importance of social distancing, isolation. Isolation is where you remove uh, sick people from the healthy population. You ask them to stay at home. If you're not feeling well, stay at home. These are very um, traditional and um, respected public health standards. Uh, the issues of quarantines or travel bans, uh, there's both um, support for those efforts that uh, some people view them as these are important steps that you would take to help uh, stop the spread. But there's also criticism of those type of efforts that they can cause economic, social, psychological um, impacts. And in fact, sometimes not as effective as, as people might think. It actually then gives people a false sense of security um, because they can be very difficult logistically to enforce. How do, how do the responsibilities break down between federal agencies, say, and, and state and local authorities? Everyone has a, a role to play in responding to an infectious disease um, outbreak, including the coronavirus. Um, that's actually one of the reasons why a number of years ago we called for a national strategy on biodefense, which the government issued in, in 2018. It requires an effective response, requires all levels of the government, federal, state, local, as well as the private sector to be um, playing their part. What we saw uh, for a number of years before the strategy came out, that our efforts tended to be very fragmented and siloed, and we were not, as a government, doing a good job looking across and and down in terms of all the potential threats and risk and prioritizing those threats and risks. And by a collective effort, really what I mean is an enterprise-wide effort, so again, everyone uh, playing a role. So at the federal level, uh, the responsibility uh, falls to a number of agencies. HHS is the lead federal agency for medical preparedness um, and response. Uh, they have a very important role to play, but other departments do as well, as including DHS, uh, Department of Transportation, uh, Department of Defense. I, re- I recall recently when we had these deaths stemming from use of e-cigarettes Um, the CDC was a provider of a lot of information about what was going on, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Correct. And so when I say HHS is the lead lead department, um, there's a number of subcomponents or agencies within Health and Human Services, including CDC. Um, ASPR uh, plays an important role. Uh, even CMS would play an, a role in um, in these type of issues. And so there's it requires a lot of coordination and good understanding of people's roles and responsibilities. Because the last thing we want is sort of is to have all these entities involved and duplicating efforts, sending out conflicting information, inconsistent information, which we've actually seen in, in past outbreaks. Uh, one of the things we learned in some work um, looking at the 2009 H1N1 influenza um, was that we were not, as a government, always um, providing clear, consistent information uh, to state and local agencies. When we talked to state and local agencies, uh, they expressed uh, confusion and frustration about both the volume of information they were getting from the federal government because it was coming from multiple sources, but that at times it was conflicting information. Where would you say our weakest links are right now in being prepared for an epidemic outbreak? 
My concerns are derived from our recent work on um, preparedness and response to the hurricanes. A lot of the preparedness and response activities that you would undertake um, in a, a natural disaster such as a hurricane would be similar to what you would want to employ uh, during an infectious disease outbreak. And what we've seen over the past couple of years, we are not, as a federal government, where we should be in our planning and, co and coordination activities. Our work and um, has shown that agencies still are not always on the same page in terms of their roles and responsibilities uh, during emergencies, for example, uh, during the recent hurricanes. HHS had called in VA to help, and VA was under the assumption that they would be running uh, shelters during the response. Um, HHS assumed that they would be providing support to medical operations. So that was just one example of where um, there was gaps in understanding of roles and responsibilities. We've also seen similar types of um, gaps or lack of understanding in, in terms of even within HHS. A number of the subcomponent agencies are responsible for approving or authorizing the use of state and local uh, workers uh, to be detailed or to be used in an infectious disease outbreak. But when we talked to those officials and responsible for those uh, subcomponents, they were not aware of their agency's responsibilities for making those approvals, which is concerning because those approvals need to take place in a very efficient manner. So we can get the right people to the right spot doing the right work at the right time. And what about Congress? In instances where we've had outbreaks, what can Congress do to assist those first responders? Congress plays in a, a very important role, both before an outbreak occurs, during and after. And if I can give you a, a couple of examples, before an outbreak, um, if you would, just sort of during normal times, if I could put that in normal in quotes, um, there's, they need to be conducting a rigorous oversight of what agencies are doing to prepare for future outbreaks. Are agencies conducting a joint planning exercises? Do they have the plans in place? Um, do they have the equipment in place? Are they stockpiling uh, sufficient vaccines, uh, drugs, and other other countermeasures? During an, an outbreak, the oversight should continue, but also working with the agencies to determine if they have sufficient resources and how they are using the resources, that the resources are being effectively and efficiently used. And then after an outbreak occurs, it's important that Congress work with the agencies to do a look back uh, what can be learned, um, holding agencies accountable for uh, conducting after-action reports, collecting the, the, the lessons learned so we can get better for the next outbreak. Mm -hmm. But pr most primarily, we can expect that Congress would, would pass an emergency appropriations should we find ourselves in a situation like they have in China right now. We, we have seen that over, um, we looked from about 2003 to 2017, Congress had provided uh, approximately $2.9 billion in supplemental funding, uh, which was designed to supplement uh, the regular capacity preparedness funding uh, that uh, both federal and state and local agencies receive. Um, when we talked to state and local agencies about the supplemental funding, they said it's critical money to receive. They need that money to help surge 
the, the, the capacity surge that's needed to respond. But there are um, challenges with supplemental funding. And it to primarily boils down to uh, the timing isn't 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 in sync. Uh, the time uh, supplemental uh, funding is passed, uh, gets to the federal government agencies, distributed down to state and local agencies. It's often too late. The, the immediate crisis has passed. Right, which raises an important question: that over over the last couple of decades, federal funding for preparedness. That's not in response to an emergency, just to be ready for the uh, the possibility of one has declined quite a bit, right? I mean, is there is there some concern about that? There is concern when we spoke to state and local officials about the level of funding. Again, during the 2003 to 2017 timeframe, we've seen a decrease in the core capacity building and preparedness funding uh, that the federal government awards to state and local agencies. And uh, they told us that that hampers their ability to conduct the necessary preparedness activities. And that's why supplemental funding during the different outbreaks becomes even even more important. Another um, avenue for funding can be the reprogramming of funds, which we've seen the secretary indicate last week was happening during this particular episode. Reprogramming can get the money out faster uh, then a supplemental uh, funding. So that's a, that's a positive. But what we heard from state and local officials is that the reprogramming takes money from those core capacity building programs. So you're essentially robbing Peter to pay Paul. It's helping during the immediate crisis, but you're taking money away from programs that have already seen a decreased uh, funding, which can hamper uh, planned or future preparedness activities. Right. My understanding is that the the core that core funding has declined from about 940 million in 2002 to 265 million last year. Now, on the coronavirus, Nikki, China, of course, is a huge supplier of pharmaceutical drugs to the United States. So, if they were to find themselves in a catastrophic situation, if this virus were to continue to spread. Could that threaten our preparedness in that our supply of our medicines could dry up? That is a concern. I, I think what this uh, virus reminds us is that um, of our reliance on foreign manufacturing of drugs and other supplies, uh, we are dependent on, on China as well as other countries for a number of our drugs. It's estimated about 60% of all Generic drugs um, are manufactured overseas, with a majority of those being manufactured in in China. So, any types of delays in producing of drugs in China because their workers are sick or they have isolation or quarantine bans in place, that could affect the supply chain, and we could see uh, potential drug shortages. The other concern is that because of, um, many of our uh, drugs are produced overseas. FDA is, has responsibility for overseeing the, the quality um, of production of the manufacturing of, of those drugs. And if there's a travel bans or other outbreaks and FDA officials are not able to oversee, uh, conduct their regular inspections, we do have concerns about um, how to ensure the quality of the drugs that are being shipped. There's other mechanisms that could be in place. But it's certainly this this is a risk that would need to be um, managed very carefully. And it actually extends outside of drugs as well. 
even with other types of supplies that you need during outbreaks, uh, such as uh, personal protective equipment. Um, most of this is produced overseas, and so and that would include masks, gowns, other types of or electronic device diagnostic devices. Um, if there's any disruption in the supply chain to getting those um, supplies, that could affect our our preparedness. Nikki, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for listening. I'm Sean Zeller. The producer of this show was Evan Campbell. CQ on Congress is produced by CQ Roll Call, a leader in nonpartisan political and policy news and analysis for more than 70 years. CQ Roll Call is part of Fiscal Note, a global technology and media company. We'll see you next week.